Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden, and joining me tonight is co-host, Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst, Dean Johnson. Just over a year ago, we looked at those who are both homeless and mentally ill and asked, is the CARE Act the answer? You see, last year, Governor Newsom signed the CARE Act, touted as both a new paradigm for mental health treatment and at least part of the solution to the problem of homelessness. Signed that act into law, permitting family members, first responders, and unspecified others to ask the courts to create and enforce treatment plans for those who have been thought to be mentally ill. And while the act has been touted as both a new paradigm for mental health treatment, at least part of the solution to the problem of homelessness... Civil rights groups and homeless advocates have suggested that the CARE Act may mask a hidden agenda. Dean? Yeah, good evening, everyone. You know, the CARE Act, as Jeff said, creates care courts. And I hope you can hear those air quotes as I say that. Uh, In doing so, the act places much of the burden of dealing with mental health issues on courts and attorneys. Some people have said, and I'm going to quote here, Mental health issues is just a euphemism for homelessness. Care court is just a way of sweeping homelessness under the rug. That our already overburdened courts are not equipped to deal with these issues, and that the CARE Act deprives people who suffer from mental illness or may just be plain old homeless of many important civil rights. Jeff? San Francisco is one of seven counties chosen to take what was but the idea for a care court for a test drive and take it out and kick the tires. The rest of the state will, the rest of the states will set up their courts over the next year. That said, each of the seven counties can design their own conditions, but to what extent are the formats standardized? What level of oversight is reserved to the state? Tonight on Your Legal Rights, we're talking about folks who are suffering from mental illness, walking the street in need of help, and the creation of the new care court starting in San Francisco. There's much to discuss. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, our toll-free number is 866 798 8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking about mental health law. We're talking about the care court process. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. And bear in mind that our guests cannot provide you with precise legal or medical advice without all the facts relating to a given case. However, we're happy to pass along legal principles to assist you in your decision-making. And their guidance mightn't be the positions of the respective patients or employers or clients, but again, our guests are here to help. Dean? Joining us tonight, as always, we have an elite panel of guests to help us sort out these thorny issues. Caitlin Willison is the Care Court Coordinating Attorney for Legal Assistance to the Elderly in San Francisco. 
Legal Assistance to the Elderly is one of the qualified legal service projects who will be representing respondents throughout the care court process. Before working at Legal Assistance, Caitlin was at the AIDS Legal Referral Panel fighting to preserve housing rights for people living with HIV in San Francisco. Also joining us tonight, Emma is a retired neurobiologist who's been fighting in San Francisco for comprehensive continuum of care for over 25 years. Emma is the parent of a reluctant consumer in the mental health system. And last but most certainly not least, Tal Clement, before practicing law, obtained a master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, as well as his Juris Doctor, that's his law degree, from Yale Law School. Mr. Clement is presently an attorney in the mental health unit of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. And Tal, Emma, Caitlin, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as our listeners know, I like to start the conversation with a big question. And my big question was kind of implied by uh, what I said in the introduction. And full disclosure here, you know, I don't know a whole lot about the care courts from personal experience. I only know what I read. And the first article I ever read, the, the, the word that came to my mind was Orwellian. I mean, it sound, care court sounds like the Ministry of Truth or the Ministry of Justice in 1984. It sounds like a way of, to me, a, a way of sweeping this problem under the rug, the problem of homelessness and taking it and putting it on courts and lawyers. Uh, have I got that all wrong? Uh, is this a good idea or uh, am I barking up the right tree? Who'd like to take a stab at that, Tal? You look like you're ready to jump. Well, jump I, was in, gonna, my friend. I was going to say you got it partly right and, and maybe partly uh, not wrong, but <laughs> maybe a little bit, bit of an exaggeration. Um, I mean, care court uh, perhaps was touted as an answer to a lot of problems, um, but in reality, I don't think it's it's really set up to address them. Namely, you know, you, you mentioned homelessness. Care court is not a, a housing program. It doesn't guarantee housing to any of its participants, although um, it, 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 it can be part of a care plan, but there's no additional funding that's been provided from the state to provide housing to every participant. And let, let me just interrupt you there. Yeah, you're right. The, 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 the labeling is on mental health problems, but every article I've ever seen, and even Governor Newsom's statements talk about homelessness, how do we kind of, how do they elide that distinction between mental health prob people who have mental health problems and the homeless? It seems like one is being used as a euphemism for the other. Have I, have I got that wrong? Well, I think it's, you're correct that there are a lot of homeless people who have mental health uh, disabilities and substance abuse uh, disorders. And my uh, rejoinder to that would be that we need to provide uh, easier access to long-term and stable housing for that population if we're ever going to fully address our homelessness problem. Um, Care Court is really designed for a specific subset of people with mental uh, disabilities. It's designed specifically to address people who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or other psychotic conditions. 
Um, so that's not necessarily everybody who's out on the on the street homeless with a substance abuse disorder. And of that subset, um, it's designed for people who are not voluntarily engaged in treatment. There are many homeless people who actually are participating in treatment. They just don't have housing. Um, and and so to, to think that Care Court would solve the homelessness problem, that's not going to happen. Um, but it potentially could provide services and treatment to some segment of that population who want to voluntarily participate. And as a public defender, it's my job to uh, meet with uh, potential participants and advise them. But if they want to participate, it's also to make sure that whatever resources are promised to them uh, in the care court program are provided to them in a timely fashion. Tell When I started as a public defender, and this is a long time, this is another lifetime ago, but when I started as a public defender, I had these views of really making a difference and changing things. And I quickly came to realize that in that role, the only thing I was going to change was that I could throw out a lifeline to a very few people. And a certain number of them would pick it up and take it and run with it, and others less so. And it sounds like this is very much an analogous lesson that uh, while statements were more grandiose, the reality is you've created a structure that hopefully – will send out a lifeline to some you know, some individuals, those who choose to take it. But it's not going to structurally change some of the problems that we've heard about. Um, can I jump in? This is Emma. Please and do. I think that care court is another tool in the toolbox, which is very dysfunctional. And as a parent who's been fighting for a continuum of care from the get-go, I think one of the positives of care court is that a family member can request that somebody be uh, applied for care court. And the hope is that you catch somebody in the midst of psychosis before they need to be 5150 or hospitalized against their will and to get them the wraparound services. And the difference between care court and the other collaborative courts is that the state has the ability to find the county if the county doesn't come through with the services. And in San Francisco, my experience has been, sadly, that things are so fragmented and non-functional so that the court has a little bit of power for oversight that these services are provided. And the hope is that you catch somebody before they have one psychotic break after another and they wind up in stage four. And my personal feeling is that we have to catch people before they're homeless. By the time somebody with a severe psychotic disorder like schizophrenia or unresponsive bipolar disorder or any other psychoses, it's almost too late for them to be in recovery. And care court is totally voluntary. People keep thinking that it's forced treatment, but it is totally voluntary. Oh, that, that, you know, that's not my understanding. I mean, my, my reading, and maybe I've got this wrong, is uh, it's touted as voluntary, but basically the procedure is the person who is going to receive this voluntary care is given a couple of chances to accept it, and if they don't accept it, then they become subject to a court order. Um, is am I totally wrong about that, Tal? Caitlin, you're shaking your head. You want to jump in? 
No, Dean, you're you're not totally wrong about that. It is um it is it is voluntary until it's not. Um, um and we're we're hoping that it will be voluntary throughout the entire process because when it becomes no longer voluntary, that's really up to the court. So the statute gives the judge that discretion to make things no longer voluntary. Um, and so there are many, many forks in the road that continue it being a voluntary process. But you're not wrong, Dean, that there is a theoretically possibility that someone could be looking at what they would call a care plan that is no longer voluntary, but it does not allow forcible medication. So um, it, it is it is quite a nuanced um, discussion of the word voluntary, um, but it, that's where it's at. But no forced medication under under the care plans. Caitlin, would you say that it's voluntary in the same sense that getting a restraining order and not not wanting one is voluntary? But to a certain extent, there's a danger that when you've turned over those controls, it's no longer voluntary. Um, I don't know if I would quite go to that point. The the part where it no longer becomes what, you know, what we would say voluntary is when someone is no longer participating and the, and the court then determines that that person needs a specific type of plan versus an agreement. Um, and that's when, when those things happen. Yeah. I'd also just add to that, that, you know, there are not penalties that are built into this statutory scheme. The court can't, lock you up. The court can't, uh, you know, deny you any of your rights uh, for not participating. It can be used, your lack of participation or your 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 inability to complete your care plan can, can be used as evidence in a conservatorship proceeding later on in which they can uh, take away more of your rights and place you in a locked facility. So that's a, an important caveat to have. I also wanted to point out that there is Although it, it's not, um, it's not. There is a, a, a black robe effect, and if, you know the, the court is using the power of the court to try and persuade you to participate. And for some participants, they are going to feel that that is uh, coercive, and they're going to resist that. Uh, others may, and you know, again, it depends on who's wearing the black robe. Um, in San Francisco, we have a, an understanding judge with a lot of experience, and I think that he's going to be very careful about how he communicates with clients and explains uh, rights to clients and all of that. But there is that kind of coercive effect of the, of the black robe and, and, and using that power to make somebody participate and to make somebody uh, follow their treatment plan. Um, May I ask a question? It is my understanding that if you're not participating in care court, you don't go directly to an LPS conservatorship hearing. Don't you have to first be placed on a 5150 hold, go to the hospital, and then be evaluated? Or you go right from the court to an LPS conservatorship if you're not participating? That's not my understanding. You don't have to be hospitalized in order to be conserved. Uh, you can have a behavioral health clinician write a certification for a conservatorship without you being 5150 and 5250. That's, that's a possibility. It's, it's not clear how it's going to play out in terms of the care court. Mm -hmm. And of course there are a lot of procedural protections in place and it's my job as a public defender and Caitlin's job as, as the representative legal representative to make sure that if somebody uh, is not 
doing well in care court, they're afforded as many opportunities to participate as they can. And if somebody doesn't succeed, it's it's not because of their own efforts. It's it's perhaps because, you know, the, the city and county isn't providing them appropriate mm-hmm. services. So we're going to be advocating for them for that. Um, but it does, the statute does contemplate that if they don't participate and they are uh, not successful in completing their care court requirements, then that can be used in a subsequent conservatorship proceeding and there is no requirement of uh, an interim hospitalization although oftentimes if somebody is not uh, participating and does meet the 5150 criteria they they could end up in the hospital you know i'm left wondering who are these care courts for i now in my private practice i appeared in mental health diversion court just a few days ago the, the calendar was 101 lines long, and these are people who had been charged with an offense, um, had mental health issues, and were petitioning the court uh, to, to, to get a mental health treatment plan. And they have to prove that they, you know, that they suffer from some sort of uh, uh, mental disorder under the, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. So it's not that... Care court's not for them. Care court is for another group of people. And who exactly is this care court going to serve? So it's for people who are suffering from a very specific type of disability. And that is going to be schizophrenia diagnosis and other psychotic disorders, which is what the DSM is calling it, which is also how the statute reflects it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not for people, say, with dementia or even people with bipolar disorder with psychotic features. There's a very, very specific um, criteria from a diagnostic perspective that qualifies someone from care court. It's also exclusively for, for adults, for people who are over the age of 18. So even though there may be younger people who are suffering from mental health disabilities, they would not qualify for care court either. Well, now I've I've heard in the media that that the part of the statute actually expands the definition for gravely disabled to include people who, for example, can't uh, maintain their own medical care, people who have serious substance abuse or alcoholism problems, and so on. Is, is that accurate, or is that just media hype? Dean, let me jump in. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask that we pass that for a little bit. Okay. We do have that in mind to cover tonight, but that's not the care court process. That's changes to conservatorship law. I do want to touch on that a bit later. But first, you're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden with my co-host tonight, Dean Johnson. And this is the start of a November, you'll remember. Tonight, we're discussing mental health law, the homeless, and the new care court. My guests, Caitlin Willison, the Care Court Coordinating Attorney for Legal Assistance to the Elderly in San Francisco. Emma, the parent to a reluctant consumer of the mental health system. And Tal Clement, representing the mental health unit of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, are all here to help. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, you can call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. Remember, this is going to be hitting the rest of the state within the next year. You might want to be listening. And again, our toll-free number, 866-798-8255. 
As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. Uh, that's mental health and the law. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. I'd like to follow up with a question to Emma. This is actually something that you touched on a bit earlier tonight. But, you know, when we were talking earlier, you said something about the family referring somebody. And in discussing with this, discussing the issue with you before, maybe I think it was when we discussed this case, uh, this issue a year ago, you commented that somebody that was suffering a mental health disability, that's probably the only healthcare arena where it's really expected and understood that there's no role for the family members in trying to develop a treatment plan, trying to help the person. Do you feel that that's still the case or has that finally changed? Well, I, I feel that I'm happy that a parent could apply for a petition for care court. I know that when I tried to apply for a petition for Laura's law, I was, you know, stymied at every, every step of the way saying that they decided that, you know, didn't qualify. I think that care court is a little bit more family friendly. Uh, I am, I, I see care court as trying to help people before they wind up being hospitalized, before they wind up being arrested. Because once you're arrested, you could then be in a ca- collaborative court like San Francisco has the behavioral health court. But care court is supposed to catch people before you're in jail, right? And hopefully, because it also could take people who have private insurance and then the court, I think the Department of Health bills the insurance company. The idea is to catch somebody in the earliest stages of psychosis because every psychotic episode causes permanent brain damage. And I think there's a misunderstanding that a person in the midst of psychosis is not capable of rational decision-making. They are controlled by their delusions. And the only thing I could explain this for is since I am not a, a, a peer is that I was born in 1946. I came to San Francisco the summer after the summer of love. I tried LSD. I wound up at the Mount Zion crisis center and needed to be on Thorazine for a week. Nobody asked me if they wanted to inject me with Thorazine, but I was off the wall. It's, and then I realized that I can never touch any of these substances again because I was completely in this delusion of a bad trip. And so when somebody is in the grips of a psychotic episode, I think it is unfair to expect them to be able to say, uh-oh, I'm psychotic, I need help. They need somebody to help them get that help. And I think that that's where care could can come in. I don't think it's perfect. You, you brought up a lot of issues, and <laughs> unfortunately, we don't have um, a mental health practitioner with us tonight, but mm-hmm. there are all sorts of mental health disabilities that some people deal with, on, and some deal with it successfully on an everyday basis, and others are more challenged from mm-hmm. day to day. But not all mental health disorders are psychotic. They don't all result in delusions. 
Right. It but could be, the people uh, who are psychotic and delusional are the ones for whom care court is. The other people are not going to be affected by care court at all. So, Jeff, can I say something about um Oh, please jump supports? in. Sure. So two things. Um, Emma, thank you for sharing that. First, the CARE Act actually provides an additional way for additional family members or loved ones to participate through the supporter program. So the CARE Act provides that um, a participant in the program can have a supporter who's involved throughout this process. So um, the the participant can choose that supporter or they can seek um, having one provided to them through another organization. So that is a way that family members and other loved ones can continue to um, participate in the care court process. And as well to touch on people needing additional services, it's absolutely true that when someone is experiencing psychosis, they have a hard time engaging in services. But one of the things that I'm really excited about for care court is the organizations who are involved have wraparound services. So my organization at Legal Assistance to the Elderly, we have social workers on staff and we have connections within the community um, for when we're outreaching to our clients to help them create that trust and create those bonds to seek the help that that um, could help them through this process. So though things are certainly not perfect in San Francisco, as everyone on this call knows, uh, there are options that I am optimistic about. You know, Dean was asking a minute ago, or was talking about a different paradigm, and that was in the court that deals with mental health diversion, which of course is diversion from a criminal case. But when we come back from our break, we still have a few minutes, but when we come back, I really want to lay out a foundation for the paradigm of care court, how it differs from a conservatorship, and really what uh, what this means for folks that are participating. And again, I think we're talking about a fairly limited reach where for those that participate, there's really the chance that a lot of folks will pick up, pick up the lifeline that you throw their direction. Everybody's nodding, but nobody's speaking. <laughs> oh, I didn't know if you wanted us to talk about it now. I mean, yeah, I think we touched on how it's different from a conservatorship. Um, in that you can't be you can't be forced to take medication in care court. Uh, the court can order it, but there's no there's no forced medication. No, it's on. And um, in addition, you can't be placed in a locked uh, facility. So what the court has at its disposal is is more limited than in a conservatorship, and the the uh, individual who's participating has more autonomy and more ability to participate in their in their plan, notwithstanding the fact that it still does involve going to court and it still does involve a court-ordered plan, you have more autonomy than if you were in a conservatorship in which there is a single individual who makes all the decisions about your treatment, your housing, your finances, uh, all of that. So I think it's 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 different to a conservatorship in that there's just more more freedoms involved. Um, having said that, though, you are still required to participate and come to court, and the court is involved in your life, and the city attorney or the county attorney is involved in assessing your progress, and so there's a lot of people kind of involved in 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 your day to day life that 
perhaps people don't necessarily want to have that level of involvement from. Is it fair to say that even with care court, even as voluntary as it is on the way in, you really are kind of starting much like you're starting a 12-step program in the sense that you realize you're dealing with something really, really big and you're surrendering and basically saying, you know, I need help to get out of this. This is something I have to call upon a higher power, so to speak. Wow, I stumped the um, panel. <laughs> Emma? Okay, so I I know people from Nevada County who were court-mandated under Laura's law, something completely different from care court. But having that support, and these courts I've sat in at Behavioral Health Court and other collaborative courts, they are very consumer-friendly and supportive. And, 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 and people are actually getting much more wraparound services if, than being told just go and meet with this social worker twice a week. I mean, they have what's supposed to be comprehensive 24-7 support so that it is encouraging and helpful. And hopefully for many, they will then have the ability to have an epiphany about, you know, wow, these medicines are really helping me if there's follow through to help them have a better life, right? And You're listening to, to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be back right after this, and Chris from San Francisco will be with you right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Before we move on, let me turn over to Chris from San Francisco. Welcome to Your Legal Rights. Chris, if you're still with us, you're on the air. I think we lost Chris. You're welcome to call us back. We're very interested in hearing what you have to say. But let me turn it over to Dean. Yeah, I'd like to take this conversation in a little bit different direction. We're getting very deep into the woods about the CARE Act and other measures. I'd just like to, to hear from all of our panelists um, more about the forest and less about the trees. Why are we all of a sudden um, having the CARE Act? Why are our mental health diversion courts packed uh, with participants? Why is there a measure on the ballot next time to change the paradigm and expand the role of mental health? I mean, what what led to this? Uh, I, I think a lot of people believe, um, and I'm you know I'm not totally convinced yet, but I, but I'm leaning in that direction that the problem of homelessness and the the response in terms of mental health legislation are correlated. Um, but I'd love to hear your opinions on this. Why are we doing this? Why is there such an explosion of uh, legislation and programs to deal with mental health? And why is there apparently an explosion of people who need these services? Well, I think what you're looking at on our streets are decades of neglect of our mental health system. 
like if we could trace back to deinstitutional deinstitutionalization and the closing of state hospitals, community mental health has never been adequately funded. And then on top of that, you have housing crisis, so that if you are someone who um, has disabilities and perhaps doesn't have a lot of income, a lot of resources, um, the options in, that are available for you in terms of housing are few, few and far between. I mean, affordable housing in the private sector no longer exists in San Francisco. And San Francisco has not stepped up over the decades and replaced uh, that affordable housing stock and has certainly not replaced it with housing that's appropriate for people with mental health disabilities where they have on-site support and services. So really what we're looking at is the end result of decades of, of neglect. And I think what's unfortunate now from my perspective is that the solution is, okay, well, let's just expand conservatorship and put more people in locked facilities potentially, as opposed to really providing uh, appropriate care at, at, at all levels so that people with mental health disabilities can remain in the community rather than in restrictive locked uh, environments. Let me jump in and turn turn it over to Chris in San Francisco. Welcome back, and you are on the air. Welcome to Your Legal Rights. Hey, I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and I have a comment and a question. The comment is, you can mandate someone to a program. You cannot mandate them to treatment. And so my question is, if we're talking specifically about psychotic disorders, how are we supposed to deal with Are you asking about today? Are you asking about after the first of the year? Or do we want to allow the panel to make that distinction and why those two answers might be different? Yeah, what you just said. That was going to come up later in the program, but let me jump ahead because I think Chris is onto something. As of today... To what extent can you impose solutions on somebody through a conservatorship if the real issue is substance abuse rather than a more inherent or congenital uh, mental health disorder or disability? Yeah, you know, Chris, this reminds me of the old joke. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, two, but the light bulb really has to want to change. <laughs> I would I come from this perspective of schizophrenia and severe psychotic disorders where very often somebody has a dual diagnosis with a substance abuse okay and the system I think needs to be completely repealed the LPS act you know which is the commitment laws I think it needs to be repealed and started over so that somebody gets treatment before tragedy. Right now, the system works on triage, right? You have to have the brain attack before you can get care. And I think that things are changing a little bit maybe on the national level because now you have Senator Fetterman who was able to self-admit himself to Walter Reed Hospital for three weeks for depression that does not happen. The only way that you could be an inpatient in San Francisco is if you don't want to be there, right? You have to be a danger to yourself or to others. 
It should be need for treatment, need for asylum in the true sense of the word, so that you could get stabilized from your psychosis, and then you could participate in job training or staying with your family. Families such as mine should never be told, get a restraining order, lock the door. And I was actually asked, what is it about homelessness that scares you? So these are not behavioral problems. These are brain disorders. And you have to understand that this population that we're talking about are not capable of just realizing that they're in the midst of psychosis or, they ha- you know, and they need help. And I think that it is, I agree, that it is not a panacea to solve homelessness. But Emma, I think what you're saying is very, very well-intentioned. But I suspect that at least two of my guests would be very concerned about the ramifications of what you're saying is that if somebody has a disability, maybe it does stem from a brain disorder, maybe not. But should they be deprived of any decision-making ability because they're delusional? And at some point, that's a pretty big give up. And I, I think it's a we, we need to tread carefully in that direction. Um, let me ask you, uh, Tal, as the law states it today, if you have somebody who has delusions, hallucinations, things that we would commonly refer to as a psychotic process, that stems from a substance abuse disorder. That's as different. It, as it stands today. Is that someone that can be conserved? Someone can't be cons- well. What, I think what you're getting at is just substance abuse uh, disorder. Right now, is not as an individual criteria for conservatorship, but it's being expanded uh, based on SB 43 in the new year, so that people with severe substance-induced psychosis or severe substance abuse disorder will qualify for conservatorship in a way that they they currently don't do. I'll say that in my experience, um, as Emma has suggested, oftentimes, unfortunately, uh, mental health disabilities go hand in hand with co-occurring substance abuse disorders. And unfortunately, there are not very many um, programs that are tailored specifically to dual diagnosis. There's only a certain number of beds in San Francisco available for people who have both uh, mental disabilities and substance abuse disorders, and that needs to be expanded greatly to really address the needs of the population. Um, and I think that, you know, changing conservatorship laws to make it easier to involuntarily detain people based on a severe substance abuse disorder is not not the answer. I mean, it goes back to Dean's comment. People have to be willing to accept treatment and, and, and want to have treatment in order for it to actually succeed. And unfortunately, right now, when people hit that point, and when people are ready to accept treatment, there are too many barriers to getting treatment in a timely fashion, you have to go through too many bureaucratic hurdles to get admitted into a program, and there are too few dual diagnosis beds. So the answer is, lower the barriers and increase the bed space and provide more opportunities for people who want treatment to get treatment when they're ready for it, as opposed to thinking that, you know, if you expand conservatorship and lock people up, 
that that somehow is going to solve their substance abuse problems long term probably won't based on my experience because people use once they're released from being locked up and you can't lock people up forever uh, people have to want to change and and harm reduction and other methodologies have been also shown to to be more effective than you know again forcing treatment on people who are not ready for it let me throw in a comment and then a question my comment is is that in following conservatorship laws throughout the state there's an awful lot of the state where the bar may be set fairly high but you don't have different gradations of treatment available and the law requires that somebody uh, be treated using the least restrictive means available so for a lot of places somebody has to be in a pretty bad state to receive treatment and then they're in a very restricted environment and anything less and it gets terminated and it seems to me from my perspective and I wanted to ask my guest tonight if you all have had a similar experience and Chris this is open to you as well um part of the problem is that we never stepped up community treatment so for a lot of folks either they're off to something pretty severe up to and including the state hospital or they're deemed where they don't really need the treatment and there's a whole lot of stages in between where we should be providing more supportive services to let them get out there and live normal lives and be with the rest of us. Yeah, Jeff, I think that's absolutely correct that there's a there's a, a process that someone goes to in terms of recovering or seeking help or treatment or whatever word you want to use. And like has been discussed before by the others on this panel, the the big problem in San Francisco is that when we do have that one pivotal moment where someone's saying, I need help or I want help or or they're at that vulnerable point and we've built that trust and all the stars have aligned and here we are and this person's ready for help, we just don't have the options in San Francisco to make that happen. And that's what's really heartbreaking that when someone says, I'm ready for treatment and then we make that call and there isn't a bed, which is a call that I've had to make before in previous careers, and to tell that person, can you come back tomorrow at nine? Can you come back tomorrow at seven? And then we've lost all of that effort that we've done. We just really need more beds and more resources. Really get this is, isn't that isn't that the endemic problem, though, is that all of this legislation is passed to create plans and programs that are foisted on people who have mental health problems and along with that is a proposal for infrastructure like housing and support services but the housing and the support services and all of that stuff that costs money never shows up i mean certainly that was true when ronald reagan deinstitutionalized the whole system back in the 60s there was a proposal to take the money and create housing and support services for people with mental health problems, the money never showed up. Uh, and that happens time after time after time. We tell people you have to get treatment. You have to get services. You have to find yourself a home. You have to find yourself employment and education. But then none of that stuff is ever made available. Uh, I question, I think, I mean, I would like to know where, I mean, San Francisco Department of Health has an enormous budget. Homelessness and supportive services has over $600 million. And, uh, and I have been told to my face 
that they're not interested in dealing with somebody who has schizophrenia, that it's for that, that, that my loved one needs a higher level of care and that doesn't exist. And it's because people are not treated in the early stages of these illnesses. Maybe that's starting to change now, but you wait until somebody has a break, a psychotic break before you can get treatment at all. And, you know, these are illnesses that start usually after the age of 18, usually end of high school, early college. Parents have no more control. And um, it's been very hard to get any treatment for schizophrenia until you have a break on or in the hospital and then you're put on enormous medicines with horrible side effects and in a week or two you're kicked out of the hospital into some very you know uh overstimulating environment where you're paranoid and afraid and and I think that care court is trying to hold the counties responsible for where all this money is going and it's a desperate effort I I I I, 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 as I would tell people who think that care court is abusive to spend a few months in my shoes or to talk to the families in California advocates, uh, FASME, um, and, and the treatment advocacy center and see what we are dealing and trying to keep our loved ones alive. Let me turn it to John. Uh, John, you've been patiently waiting for us. Welcome to your legal rights. Uh, thanks so much. Um, feel free to cut me off if my comments aren't germane. This is maybe just slightly different topic, but or but I think very closely related. I, it's one thing to talk about what the law should be. It's another thing when you've dealt with it firsthand and you've seen what saves someone's life. Some years ago, I was hired by an adult child to work with an older mother, and I discovered that the, this woman was starving herself to death. She wasn't getting enough nutrition. And she was her nutrition she got was through alcohol, large amounts. And I convinced her son to take away her car keys if he didn't want his mother to kill somebody or herself. And he did. And she was too... At any rate, I was able to taper her off alcohol or down to a sustainable level. And she lived 10 years, adopted a cat, and had a happy... She hated me because I was, ran her life like a dictator. But it was very satisfying to make her last 10 years good years. And this may be slightly different than the type of conservatorships you're talking about. But, I mean, it's all great to say out someone's free will and they have their choice. But, hey, someone's a drunk or a drug addict or has severe mental problems. They're not competent to make those decisions. Been there, done it, and I would do it again. John, one thing that I would make a distinction real quickly. What we're talking about is a more limited voluntary approach to let people enter where hopefully the court reaches somebody at an earlier stage. What you're talking about is somebody later who actually is losing weight, is not eating, is doing things that could have gotten them conserved. If you're going to talk again, I need to take a One thing that, Tal, you brought up a minute ago, are changes coming from um, from the latest legislation that uh, that's changing? It's SB forty three. We've spoken of substance abuse disorders, but 
doesn't SB 43 cast a pretty wide net? I mean, even if somebody is unable to provide for their basic safety uh, or met necessary medical care as a result of even alcoholism uh, is even covered within 43. It's a pretty broad net, is it not? It is a broad net. Uh, currently, you can be conserved for being uh, chronically uh, disabled as a result of an alcohol problem. Um, this broadens the criteria in two ways. It includes severe substance abuse disorder is another way that you can be conserved. So not necessarily something that coexists with a, a mental disability, but a, just a diagnosis of severe substance abuse disorder alone could conserve somebody. The other way that it expands the criteria are that uh, currently to be gravely disabled, you have to be unable to provide for your food, food clothing, and shelter. And this expands the definition to also include uh, health and also uh, personal safety, necessary medical care and personal safety. So those are two additional grounds for making someone uh, gravely disabled under the expanded conservatorship laws. And so we'll have to see how that plays out in terms of how that's defined, because it's pretty broad to say that someone's potentially at risk for their public safety. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? Like, because they have a mental disorder. I mean, unfortunately, it's hard to exist in society as it is, uh, you know, without sometimes being afraid. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that's another way it's going to be expanded. And w we have major concerns that those are kind of general, broad criteria that will be hard to narrow down and apply equally amongst all people who may come into the system. You know, Tal, I, I got to ask you as an attorney, do you even think that's constitutional? I mean, I can see all kinds of equal protection problems with uh, the guy who comes to uh, who's a CEO of a corporation and he lives in his penthouse in San Francisco and gets totally drunk every night. He's fine. But if his neighbor who's out on the street and homeless and is drinking night train every night and maybe is a problem to the police, all of a sudden he's conserved. Uh, I mean, just. You know, it seems like a, a, a huge broom that's being designed to sweep up the homeless because, you know, the homeless are people who can't care for their housing and their clothing and their medical care and who use substance, use al alcohol and controlled substances to self-medicate the pain. I mean, isn't this really sweeping the problem under the rug? I think I agree with a lot of your points. I mean, clearly, like if you're person in poverty, uh, how is a court going to differentiate between your inability to care for your uh, food, clothing, shelter, personal safety as a result of your living on the street and being poor as opposed to having, you know, one of these conditions? So I think there's a lot of problems there. There will be uh, constitutional challenges to the expanded criteria uh, because they are so vague. And whenever you have something that's void for vagueness, there's due process issues, and then there's also equal protection issues in that one judge may apply the standard in one way and another judge may apply the standard in a completely other, different way, um, which is also a violation of the Constitution. So those are things that will have to be played out. I do I do want to go back, though, and, and, and bring back some of the focus. And I, I do want to say that I think uh, Emma... And Caitlin and I agree on a lot of uh, a lot of things, actually. And we all seem to agree that the current um, mechanisms for providing care to people, it's too much of a zero-sum game. It's either you're, you're locked up, have no rights, and 
get treatment or, you know, that the other options available to you are a few and far between. And we need to expand opportunities for people to voluntarily engage in treatment. And we need to change our models of mental health treatment. I've been involved in programs in which um, mental health workers have gone out into the community and met people in encampments and on the streets and offered them services and offered them, uh, you know, resources where they are, as opposed to waiting for people to come inside their, you know, offices up five flights of stairs and make an appointment. And whenever you have that kind of intervention in someone's life and show that someone, show someone that, that, that there's someone there who's caring for them and who'll show up for them on a regular basis, the results are, are often, you know, highly successful. I've seen many success stories uh, when the right outreach is done. And so changing the way we think about providing mental health treatment is another piece of this uh, equation that I think needs to get more attention. You know, we're running near the end of the hour, and I do want to touch on a couple of things that we haven't had a chance to get to yet. Tal, let me turn to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the public defender's role or legal counsel's role in the care court compared to what it would be in a conservatorship court? Sure, and I'll let Caitlin jump in, too, because Caitlin's going to be providing uh, representation. Um you know, care court is a more collaborative court. Uh, it, we are not um, going to be as adversarial as we would be potentially when someone uh, is facing treatment in a locked facility. It's going to be our job to advocate for the stated interests of uh, potential participants. So if a participant wants to participate, we're going to make sure that uh, all the services that are promised to them are provided. We're going to hold the county accountable as uh, Emma has suggested, if those services are not being provided, um, we're going to make sure that the, their voice is heard, that they are part of the process and they have agency, uh, because the more that they can be involved in their treatment plan, all studies suggest and personal experience suggests, the more likely it is to be successful. So that's more of a collaborative approach. Of course, if someone doesn't want to participate, uh, we're going to advocate for that too, and we're, we're going to point out that they don't meet the criteria and we're going to litigate it and we're going to cross-examine witnesses and everything that a, a good attorney would do. But it is generally a more collaborative court than conservatorship and we're approaching it uh, with that point of view. And Caitlin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the statute says in and of itself that this is supposed to be more collaborative and, and less um, formal in the sense that we're not going to be as adversarial as you would, you know, expect in court, like you would see on TV or something like that. But that doesn't mean that our clients don't have rights to, you know, the rules of evidence and other things when we need to exercise those things under the law. Um, but collaboration is the foundation of, of this program. And it is, it is the, the foundation of how my office intends to, to see it and, and to reach out to people. But at the end of the day, we are lawyers um, and there are things that we will have to do, but it, it will be very different than the court that most um, Americans would think of. We're really running low on time, and I wanted to give each of you maybe 30 seconds or thereabouts for any closing thoughts. Um, let me start with Emma. Did you want to come in first? Yeah, I just want to say that um, I think that it is 
disingenuous to conflate conservatorship with care court. And one of the problems that I would suggest that people read DJ Jaffe's book, Insane Consequences, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, or go on the Treatment Advocacy Center website, tac.org, or read Ron Power's book, uh, nobody cares about crazy people so that they understand what it is like to be a family member trying to help somebody before they become homeless. Because right now, why are half of these mentally ill people on the streets? It's because their families ha- uh, can't cope with them anymore because they couldn't get them care before they wound up in jail or on the streets. And I don't want to see our prisons filled up with mentally ill people, which is happening now. Caitlin, would you like to take about half a minute? Sure. I think overall, collaborative is the word that we're working with with Care Court. Um, and I, I would just encourage all the listeners to remember that that collaboration includes um, citizens encouraging their their elected officials to give us the tools that we need to collaborate. So um, if if people are worried or afraid that Care Court is not going to work, um, I would encourage you to reach out to your supervisors and, and other elected officials to provide us with the funding that we will need and the additional resources that people who are suffering need in order for us to be able to collaborate fully. And let me turn it to Tal. You've got about 30 seconds. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, uh, getting back to what Dean said, it's called care court. I think we could use less court and we could use better care. Mm-hmm. And that means properly funding uh, mental health care throughout the whole continuum, as Emma has suggested, and making it easier for people to voluntarily engage with appropriate treatment. That's the long-term goal. I hope we can all work together to make that happen. Dean, do you want to take about 15 seconds? Um, Yeah, you know, I think that we are putting the the burden on the wrong institution. I, I, I think we've got our policies upside down. And the first thing that we should be doing is looking at getting these people who are out on the streets what they need. And the first thing, the, the first problem that homeless people have is they don't have a home. And if we uh, provide proper housing, uh, they, they've shown in, in uh, many, many uh, experimental programs in Europe that housing is the key. And once you do that, the homeless population drops radically. So we're just doing it upside down. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight, we've been discussing the mental health system, and in particular, the care court system. Our guests tonight have been Caitlin Wilson, the care court coordinating attorney for legal assistance to the elderly in San Francisco, Emma, parent to a reluctant consumer of the mental health system, and Tal Clement, representing the mental health unit of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Please be sure to join your legal rights. We're on November 8th. We revisit our discussion of bankruptcy. And on November 15th, we look at cryptocurrency after the trial of SBF. And as always, Wednesday at 6 p.m., we will take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guests, Tal Clement, Caitlin Willison, and Emma. And to my co-host, NBC legal and political commentator, Dean Johnson. And on behalf of your legal rights, a big thanks to all of you for listening. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Be safe and zealously guard your legal rights.
And support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.